You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. They moved the patient out of room four when animals started dying outside his window. The squirrels came first, a slightly disjointed row of them that appeared in a single day, just a few feet away from the window ledge. Furry tails limp and snake-like, chests sealed to the patchy lawn with dead weight. Two of the three nurses who gathered at Room 4's window that afternoon blamed the live oak tree nearby. Some sort of awful fungus must have laced itself all through the branches overhead. Then Alvin and his poor buddies took a few nibbles and plop, plop, plop. But Arthel Williams wasn't sold on this scenario. It would have been five plops in all, and not a single one of the squirrels had landed on its back. Was that even statistically possible? The thought of there being statistics related to random squirrel deaths made her laugh so hard her breath fogged the glass. She volunteered to go outside and take a closer look. It was a marvel, she thought, that her co-workers could empty a bedpan without so much as a wince, but the idea of getting within a few feet of a dead rodent turned them into squealing little girls. Christopher Rice is the author of five best-selling novels, A Density of Soul, The Snow Garden, Light Before Day, Blindfall, and The Moonlit Earth. His latest book is The Heavens Rise. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris, this is a rockin' novel. It's really (laughs) exciting and tense and intense from the get-go. You've done a great job of showing us just how terrifying, how awful, and how horrible adolescence is. (laughs) Well... You know, that's. I think it spills over into adulthood as well with with this book. I I, I am preoccupied, as I think a lot of uh, novelists who work in dark suspense are, with that idea that there's some great trauma in adolescence that can potentially be healed later in life, but through a really, really bloody series of revelations, you know, and, and, and that's something that I've worked on throughout. But, you know, this being my first supernatural book, I, I was intrigued with this idea of splitting it, you know, of having a big divide of several years between the, the, the youth of the characters and when they're brought back together as adults. And, you know, there's an interesting thing here because I, I'm being asked a lot did I decide to write a supernatural book? Because it is The Heavens Rise is my first supernatural book. And the answer is not at the outset. I decided to write about New Orleans again. And in in that urge was this desire to almost tell a kinder, gentler story, if you can believe it, about New Orleans. But when I say that, what I mean is I wanted to have a kinder and gentler perspective on the city itself. Uh, my first novel, A Density of Souls, was set there, and it was very much an angry young man's novel. And uh, I was out to punish people. I was out to get my comeuppance on or give comeuppance, I should say, on some people who I felt had done me wrong when I was young. And a lot of times, a lot of the time, that is what a a 21-year-old will write about if you let them just write anything they want. So with this book, I knew I wanted characters that were um, celebratory of the aspects of the city that I really liked. And in outlining the female of the piece, Nikki DeLongpre, 
I figured out pretty early on that she had gone missing and that her disappearance had sort of emotionally leveled her boyfriend, Anthem Landry, and her best friend, Ben Broyarn. But I didn't. I, it took me a while to figure out why she'd gone missing. I, I kept spinning my wheels and thinking, oh, was she a drug addict? I had written so many mysteries and thrillers up to that point that dealt with the criminal's life. And I, I didn't want to do that again. And then one day it was, it clicked on. She's got a supernatural ability and she's got a supernatural ability that she would be tempted to abuse on the people that she cared about the most. You know, not, not just something that she thought would hurt them or destroy them because we've seen that story a million times. This is something she thought she would literally abuse, you know, and it's, she can control people's minds. You know, uh, you referred to this as a supernatural novel, but I think I disagree. This, I, in many ways, I would call this a, a science fiction novel. You've grounded this pretty well. Yeah. It's not. This isn't magic. This is, and I love the your creation of this thing seeping up from mm-hmm. the underworld. It's yeah. very Lovecraftian. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm being asked about Lovecraft a lot because there is that aspect of it. That, that yeah, this is about a parasite that literally comes bubbling up out of an aquifer into this artesian-fed swimming pool. And I don't really connect with Lovecraft as a reader. I find that for the most part, H.P. Lovecraft is afraid of a lot of things that I'm not afraid of, like foreigners, for instance. <laughs> People with dark skin. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, there's a, there's a, I am more afraid of people who have Lovecraft's attitude towards the human body than I am afraid of the human body itself, you know? And so it's, it's an interesting because in horror, which the, a lot of people are calling elements of this book horror, if not the entire book, um, he's a god and he's really widely revered. And, and I, I read his work and it's all so in the same tone of frenzied hysteria with no real arc or, and no real characters that leap out at me that I have a hard time with it. But that said, what there is in this book, right, is a fear of nature, just wildness, you know, and that is a Lovecraftian idea. You know, I, as a 10-year-old, moved from San Francisco to the Deep South, and it felt like a shift away from civilization into a a netherworld where you couldn't tell what was land and what was water, because that's very much what Louisiana is like. And there was suddenly wildness everywhere, and I'm talking about literal wildness, nature, swamp, creatures, you know, (laughs) little shacks hanging over the bayou, all those things that you see in the pastoral postcards of South Louisiana, I found very menacing. And so there is that attitude towards nature. And one of those things, when I was very young, I traveled across Lake Pontchartrain to the North Shore, and there was a family out there, a wealthy family with a property, and they very proudly pointed to their swimming pool, which was it wasn't an above-ground pool, but it looked almost like an Indian burial mound. It was on top of the swelling in the earth. And they said, that is fed directly by an artesian well. And I just thought, that is the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. You mean it comes right out of the well and it goes into that pool? Now, I, as my best friend Eric Shaw Quinn pointed out to me, all water essentially comes out of the ground. But there was something about the directness of the contact between this well and the swimming pool that stayed with me always. You know, one of the things I think that strikes me about this book as I read it is that it's 
plotted so intricately and mm-hmm. it's so intense. I'd like you to talk about, how, tell us a little bit about how you put this together in terms of a timeline because you go back and forth in the novel and it just creates this incredible sense of tension for us as readers. Uh, did, is that how you experienced it as a writer? It is how I experienced it as a writer. It was very deliberate. I wanted to uh, shift back and forth. I wanted multiple points of view. I wanted an ensemble cast, which is not a term you hear bandied about with novels very often. You hear it for theater or TV or film. But I wanted multiple points of view on the gradual flowering of this hopefully overwhelming supernatural universe that comes literally comes up out of the earth. I was inspired by the type of a horror slash supernatural novel that there isn't really a market for or doesn't seem to be a market for anymore. It was very popular in the 80s and 90s. It was, it was, it was you know, Stephen King. But also it was when we had other novelists besides Stephen King doing it. Robert McCammon, who was hugely influential on me. Robert McCammon is so underknown, and, yeah. and I loved his work. Absolutely. A wonderful swan song is, a, is an unbelievably grand and terrifying apocalyptic novel, which is still in print. Many of his novels are not, but they're coming back because of e-books. Anyway, so the, the, those juicy big, multiple points of view horror novels. And this was a much bigger novel, much bigger. I was given the directive when Simon & Schuster agreed to buy it that I had to cut 50,000 words out of it. And that meant three major characters didn't make the cut. And But as a result of that, something happened, which often happens with me in the revision process, is I discovered that I have invented three characters to do the job of one. And so the character of Marissa Hopewell, who is the, um, she's a black journalist who becomes the editor of the alternative newspaper, and she's a resident of the Lower Ninth Ward who lost her home in Katrina. She became a much more prominent character, whereas her job thematically was being done by several different white characters I really didn't need (laughs) very much. And she became the mentor for Ben, the young reporter in the book. And so that, that, you know, dropped a lot of those words I was told to lose. But there were there was material that I have saved, which may come out at a later date about backstory and and other things. It, you know, it was a it was a big fat 1980s horror novel when I turned it in, and it it became something leaner. But I did maintain those shifts and points of view and shuttling back and forth in time because I love books that are told that way. You know, I had come from. Uh, writing two books that were a single point of view from start to finish in which the events depicted happened probably over the course of two weeks. They were very tightly coiled uh, mystery thrillers, terrestrial mystery thrillers, in which there were no mind control parasites or strange monsters like this book. And I really wanted to do something different. You know, I wanted to do something at the outset that couldn't be pitched in two sentences. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled that you brought back these 80s horror novels. And actually, I think they are coming back. I mean, mm-hmm. Stephen King has Dr. Sleep. We have his son, Nosfora, too. I mean, mm-hmm. those kind of big novels are coming back. And I think this is going to be an important part of that horror revival. And they tend, it interests me because I think that they tend to show up in hard economic times. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to why. When things get tough in the wallet, we turn to supernatural terrors. Well, I think there's this idea of powerlessness that we all wrestle with. You know, I'm someone who believes we are all more powerless than we would like to admit on a day-to-day basis. We could all go really at any time. 
it, which is the the infuriating and also uh, thing about the human condition. But it's also something that we can just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. I think what is making people particularly sharp in their appetites now for scary stuff is that notion that that wealth is concentrating in the hands of a privileged few and that opportunities are evaporating for everyone else. Um, on, on I have an internet radio show called The Dinner Party Show, which I, I co-host with my friend Eric Shaw Quinn, and he has been very sharp about the zombie uh, experience that we're in now because he he believes that it sort of represents or it's fueled by this desire to depersonalize everyone so that you may kill them. That the zombie is, in fact, a, while it seems like it's an apocalyptic disease story, it's really about a desire to just mow down everyone who's in your path because they're a zombie and they're no longer human. So I think we have that going on in our culture, and I see that reflected in our political landscape. But I also see writers like Joe Hill and a, and a lot of the, the new writers addressing what is actually frightening to this generation. You know, and I think for a while, in Hollywood at least, we had these revivals or remakes, I should say, happening over and over again. People were just remaking the horror movies that had scared them because they were a studio exec and they were of a certain age. And they weren't necessarily connecting with the audience. And then we had torture porn. Torture porn exploded really suddenly. And I couldn't connect with it. It was too much for me. I didn't want to watch people be tortured for two hours. But it was the Nightmare on Elm Street of our generation because Nightmare on Elm Street was about this idea that there's something rotten underneath the surface of this of Reagan's new morning in America. You know, that there's something that this squeaky clean community has unethically murdered this child molester and he's coming back to get their kids. That was the Nightmare on Elm Street story, that you couldn't repress that side of, of human nature. And then suddenly movies like Saw were about um, these seemingly impossible political choices that we were being presented with during the war on terror. Well, the only way to fight the war on terror is an unjustified war in a country that didn't attack us that kills hundreds of thousands of civilians. You know, these, these unbelievable black and white reductive BS, if you will, choices that were being forced on us. And along comes this huge horror franchise that's about this insane man who forces you to make those very impossible choices. You've got a device on your head that's going to tear your head open unless you you kill this person to get the key out of their stomach. I couldn't go there. It was so scary to me, but I don't question its its relevance to this generation, and I think that was part of it. But but for me as a writer, I had to find my own piece, you know, and that came with this idea of mind control. You know, that the super. I had to sit down and think, what's the supernatural ability that re, that resonates with me the most, but is also the most terrifying, and it's the idea of losing your individuality, losing your self will to somebody else who doesn't have your best interests at heart. And I think, you know, all of that, it, re it gets back to that feeling of powerlessness that we struggle with in various ways in different generations. Well, one of the things I thought was so great about this novel was that you have created this really terrorizing supernatural power, and we see that play out in really horrific ways, but Equally, you've created a, a gallery of characters, some of whom are wonderful and whom we like, and others are whom <laughs> yeah. at best repellent and mostly horrific. Yeah. And and a lot of situations where things are just chaotic and gnarly and ugly. And I think that those two work really well together. You make that mesh. Thank you, thank you. I you know I the the power in, at play here is not fundamentally good or bad. 
But if it ends up in the wrong hand, or because it's a parasite that takes control in your brain, if it ends up in the wrong head, I should say, it can be horrifying. And what this is the story of that. This is the story of two people are given this power years ago, and one of them is an absolute psychopath. But what makes him the villain of the piece is that he is surrounded by these characters who are making sacrifices, who are trying to protect and preserve New Orleans, particularly in the wake of Katrina and the inundation and, and, and the levee failures and the, and the Holocaust, you know, that was Katrina. And he can only focus on a single act of sexual rejection that happened to him when he was 17 years old. He wakes up, discovers he has this unbelievable ability, discovers that it's been used on him in a way that is revealed as the novel goes along. But all he wants is revenge. And in the universe of this novel, that mono focus on self is the villainy of the piece, you know? And and I, I was fascinated by that because it was a way to make him a perfect villain and have him be surrounded by characters that were still interesting. You know, I, I think the horror that I don't like, the shallow horror movie that we're all used to is monster shows up on the scene, Awful, unlikable characters are introduced one by one, and we know that they will be dispatched in various semi-creative ways as we go along, and we're never connected to any of them. My, my first encounter with Robert McCammon, which actually wasn't very long ago, was a novel he wrote called Stinger. What a great novel It was that a is. great novel. <laughs> I love that book. Because you take the premise, okay, an alien crashes in this Texas town, basically on the last day that the town is going to be in existence. The factory is closing, the school is closing, and the alien crashes, and it's being chased by another alien bounty hunter. All right, sounds like a total B-movie presence. And then the town becomes a character. Because then I realized by about chapter four, oh, this is not a writer who's just introducing these characters as pieces of meat to be killed off one by one, that they're actually going to be real flesh and blood people engaging with this uh, otherworldly intrusion. And that's the stuff that elevates uh, work beyond just pure genre level or pure hard genre level. You know, I, I think, too, that I, I really like the way that you have paced this book. I mean, it's very, very fast-paced. Mm -hmm. And there, are, I think, there are two elements to the pacing. One is the the chapterizing. So I'd like you to talk about just um, crafting this in chapters that are largely single scenes. And, and I think that's that really works for the novel, but it must have been kind of tough to write. Well, it is. I'm not sure I always go... I, I flub the exact name or literary style that, that it is. I think it's restricted third-person point of view that I write in, which is basically almost like the camera's point of view. There, there is no overarching voiceover narration. You are either with this character seeing what they see or you're with this character seeing what they see. And it can be um, an interesting way to tell a story because it allows the reader to assemble all the pivotal information. That's why. That's exactly it. We get yeah. to put it together as exactly. readers. Exactly. And in this book, what it allows you to do is it allows you to see the threat coming against the characters before they ever do. And there are moments when, when characters you've been with for half the novel are suddenly in the presence of a character that you know has the power to control their minds and make them do absolutely anything that character wants them to do, but they have no idea. And that's that Hitchcockian suspense that, that I love. That's the audience knowing there's a bomb under the table, but neither person sitting at the table knows yet. You know, And that's what that point of view allowed, allowed me to do in this book. But I'm a fan of the tightly coiled. I'm a fan of the lean. You know, I, I've been very influenced by the work of a writer named Blake Crouch, who has had a resurgence in the ebook universe and who has a series that will be on FX called Wayward Pines. And I was very impacted by his work because... It, 
you know, in the universe of fear, if they put the book down to take a break, you've lost your grip. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've lost your grip and they might be able to walk in the other room and talk themselves out of it and say, oh, it's not so bad. You know, the, you know it's not. It's just a book, you know. But if if you can if you can craft something that takes them by the front of their shirt and doesn't let go until they're done, you know, that's that's fun. I, I think that's fun. And, and I think that's an important aspect, I think, of this book, as opposed to uh, at least my experience of uh, the the torture porn genre where I've watched mm-hmm. of it, which is, I admittedly, is not much, mm-hmm. is that you managed to take a lot of kind of awful things and some awful people and some good things and good people, but to make it fun. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important aspect of this. And I'd like you to talk about crafting that kind of enjoyability into the plot, into the tension, and but not ever letting it slide into goofiness. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's an interesting balance because I think it, that distinction always lies with the reader, you know, because I think what I think is not goofy, somebody else will think is goofy. This book eventually goes to a place of, of monsters, and I won't reveal specifically how. And some readers are having trouble with it because they 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 were hungry for more of the gritty realism of the characters. And when the when the supernatural universe starts to blow open towards the end of the book, and you see the full implications of this ability and its side effects on on who it's used on, some of the readers are going, "Whoa, whoa, man!" But I think it's a completely logical journey for me as a writer. It's a completely logical journey. I think it's seated along the way if you're really paying attention. But I think one of the devices that I use because I believe in it is is another uh, tip I got from my best friend, Eric Shaw Quinn, who's an excellent critic and has a background in working as a critic. And he said, what is always scarier is what you don't see and what you have to imagine. Um, one of the most works that has impacted me the most, and I'm certainly not alone, is Steven Spielberg's Jaws. And one of the reasons that movie is as good as it is is because that shark didn't work. They went out to Martha's Vineyard having storyboarded what was probably going to be Godzilla at sea. You know, the shark was going to be in every shot. That opening scene where the, where the, where the young woman swims out at night and gets eaten, we were going to see the shark in that shot. But the mechanical shark was so fickle and the pneumatic pumps wouldn't work in the salt water that he had to reconceive his entire approach to the movie. And it became about what was under the surface, not what was breaking the surface. And that opening scene is single-handedly the most frightening movie scene I have ever seen. There was my childhood before I saw that scene and there was my childhood after I saw that scene. And so that idea of fading to black and letting letting you fill in the blanks, you the reader... You know, and having what not necessarily what Marshall Ferio does with his mind control power be the scariest thing, but what he could do with it. You know, that's that's to me, that's so much more unnerving. And and one of the things you do with this when you create this power is I think you start to rebuild out the world in in the way in the manner of a science fiction novel Mm -hmm. Um, that once you have this power loose and, and uh, out in the world that you're going to have to rebuild the world and I'd like you to talk about your vision of our world with your power in it. Gosh, you know, it is it as I debate and 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 you know with myself 
plot out what the sequels to this book could look like. You know, I don't want to give too much away, but that is the question that I would have to answer because this is a story of this power being loosed upon the world. And it is, what's fascinating is that it's politically a very divisive idea because, okay, so let's say you could use it for good, which I'll put in air, air quotes. So you're basically taking people's individual liberty away and controlling them for, for short periods of time to accomplish whatever your goal is, no matter how altruistic. What's, what are the ethics of that? You know, I mean, like, what would a liberal think of that? What would a conservative think of that? You know, those are all questions that would be incredibly fun to play with as a writer. Um, so there's that idea. What about the approach that is being used all the time? You know, there is another mind control novel that's very popular with um, with a lot of horror novelists. It's sort of a cult classic, which is Carrie and Comfort by Dan Simmons, which was a huge, very troubled novel. The publication of it was very troubled, and Dan Simmons has written extensively about it. But he took a different approach. He had mind vampires that they pushed themselves into you, and you were still somewhat present while they were controlling you. But his, in his mythology, they'd been with us for time immemorial, and they had been controlling events. They, they were responsible for turning people into famous serial killers that we knew of. That is an approach. I'm not, I don't think that's the approach that, that I would do, because as you learn in reading this book, there's a terrible price if you use this power incorrectly or on the wrong person. And, and that, that price and, and, and the awareness of that and recognition of that price would determine how this is used in the world, if at all. You know, you mentioned this being your novel about the good side of New, New Orleans. <laughs> right. It? Because I'm a rice, it turned out to be a horror novel, right? Uh, but, I, but I think that, it's, that that's really true. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond the horror aspects, you do a good job of showing us how people come together in the face of, you know— mind-controlling, monstrous human beings, uh, mm-hmm. a, a, as well as Katrina. And I'd like you to talk about you know, some of how you used your personal experience um, of the time you've spent in New Orleans to create, I think, the feel of New Orleans as, as being something that's kind of held together with rubber bands and bungee cords. There is a sense that it's held together with rubber bands and bungee cords, but there's also a sense that it's held together by the the um, spirit of the people, to, to use a kind of mawkish expression. There is a sense that, um, that what makes New Orleans New Orleans, okay, maybe it's the landscape, maybe it's the um, physical locations of the city, maybe, maybe it's all of those things, but there is there is a spirit there. There is an, an insistence on sensual pleasure and celebrating sensual pleasure. There's an insistence on history. There is, there is an identity there that stems from being unique, from being un-American in the most positive sense of the word, from being Afro-Caribbean, from being European, from being all these things that the rest of the country doesn't have, that um, isn't necessarily as influenced by. All of that is really what holds New Orleans together. I, I, I personally, the, 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 oh, the impact of Katrina is incalculable, and, and it was horrible. And it was a horrible thing to witness as somebody who had recently left the city, someone who left the city with some pretty conflicted feelings about the city, by the way. I did not have a great high school experience. I was a closeted young gay man in an environment that I felt was very socially conservative. So I had conflicted feelings, but 
then watching the city go through that and watching the city be dismissed by by members of the media as as a sort of sin city Vegas on the Gulf, you know, all of that was terrible. It wasn't anywhere near as terrible as actually going through the flooding yourself if you had stayed behind. But all of that um, left me with the sense that, you know, like what I should say is in those moments, people who were watching thought this city may not ever stand up again. I think we forget. We forget the attitude that it was over, really, that the city was done. You know, there was an essay on Slate that basically said as much. It was a very loving essay by somebody who lived there who said, listed all the restaurants he was saying goodbye to because the scope of the disaster seemed so enormous. But most of us didn't really have faith that the city would stand up again. And it did. And we can't forget that. We can't forget that it did stand up again. We cannot ignore the extent to which it has recovered emotionally and psychologically. Now, the Lower Ninth Ward, that's not the story there. It's still very bad there. There's still vast tracts of empty land. But at the same time, there was a return that happened that has to be recognized and has to be celebrated. And that is very much a theme in this book. I, You know, I, I, one of the things I think that this book does very well is uh, create, you know, physical places. And it's really kind of this book is very gritty feeling, you know, right there in the book. And I'm wondering if that comes from, you know, do you revise, does your prose come out the way it does on first on first draft, or does that have to be, do you like have to remove words, vacuum out the extra words? I do vacuum out the extra words. I, I My style is very lean, and I like to make it leaner. And, it, and if I can say it with less words, I will. I will. And I think that's probably the impact of my father, who was a poet. Um, he was a poet here in the Bay Area, Stan Rice. He was very much, uh, that was his influence. It was, you know, it was, not, it was not about excess. You know, and I think because I choose to tell the story in that third person sort of way, it is the most, uh, I want to say, equitable to every point of view to tell it in that way. Whereas I think with my mother's work, the, the voices of the supernatural characters that she inhabits and their spirituality and their cosmology demands a different voice. You know, it wouldn't, my voice wouldn't be the appropriate way to tell that story. <clears throat> I also think, too, that your sense of dialogue really makes the pacing of this novel really fast. It's really fast and it's easy to read, and, and it seems... Um, kind of, I guess, authentically chaotic. You, you really mm-hmm. seem to capture the way people talk. It's kind of more modern than even most clipped um, Elmore Leonard as the god of dialogue kind of stuff. So I'd like you to talk about uh, creating your sense of dialogue. And uh, do you write down what you eavesdrop or do you just eavesdrop? You know, I, I'm glad you said that. I, I think people have different opinions about dialogue, dramatically different opinions about dialogue. I think that the, the, you know, the leanness that we've been talking about in terms of prose can go too far with dialogue when it becomes too clipped and too inauthentic. And you have to pepper it with, with uh, you know, colloquialisms and, and little things that make it sound naturalistic. But what I will say is I believe that what is good dialogue in a novel is not necessarily what you eavesdrop at the cafe. That people and I that I did have that exercise once in a dramatic writing class where I had to go out to a cafe and eavesdrop on a conversation and actually transcribe it, and what ended up on the page would have just sounded, actually it would have sounded oddly wooden in a book, which is the strange thing, um, because people I think in conversation don't respond to each other as directly as they believe they do, whereas you know in the world of screenwriting and TV writing we're taught that 
character enters a room, expresses a need, however indirectly through dialogue, and is either thwarted or the need is met and they move on to the next need. You know, and that's not always how people talk in a coffee house, you know, but it's how how we make those scenes have a trajectory, you know, that serves our overall story. So I, I think that's part of it. But people in Louisiana talk in a different way. They really do. They have a different way of talking. And they I think no matter how far I get from the South, I you know, I've written three novels set exclusively in California before this one. There was still, I would find that what the character was going to have to have some sort of Southern background to justify the way I wrote them. And one, one of the things that also, or one of the places that influences me heavily is Texas. People talk differently in Texas, too. My father was from Texas when we still lived in the Bay Area. My, my experience of the South was summers in Texas before we ever moved to Louisiana. And, and there is this sort of, there's a dry, clipped way of talking in a, in a way of, in Texas of leaving out inefficient or excessive words, you know. And Louisiana isn't quite so lean, but all of that's in there. You know, all of that's in there. But, but ultimately, the challenge of dialogue in a story like this is that I still have a supernatural universe to lay out clearly for the reader. I still have elements of mystery which need to be revealed efficiently. And the dialogue does a lot of the work of that. It has to, it has to do that job um, just as much, if not more, than feel authentic. You've alluded to spending some time in Hollywood and, mm-hmm. and having been drawn there. Has this book been optioned? And what other things have you worked on? And maybe how have they influenced what we read here? Well, we um, for years now, Mom and I have been working on trying to mount the next vampire film. Which has been uh, which has been a challenging process. Um, Hollywood is always challenging, but I have written a script for which there has been a lot of interest, and the issues that have prevented that script from being purchased or being made don't have to do with the script, but they have to do with business affairs departments at various studios and the history of the franchise and various complicated things, which I hope will soon be worked out. There is more film interest in The Heavens Rise than there's been in anything else I've written. Um, but there is, you know, there movies are a strange business. You know, I, somebody wants to make it one day and then the next day they don't or they buy it because it's selling a million copies and then it's dead as a doornail in development. So there's no telling what's going to happen tomorrow. But there's a there's some very big producers interested in seeing this made into a movie. Nobody believes more than I do that books and movies are different things. So while I would very much like to be part of the adaptation process, I don't believe a good movie version of a book is the book on screen. I don't believe that. And I think we've seen examples of where that's failed miserably. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to name them all but in this short amount of time. But so it would be a question with a book that is as intricate as this and has as many points of view as this book does, even though it seems the right length to be a sort of clean adaptation. It's, you know, a good even 320 pages in novel length form. Uh, it would need adaptation. It would need to, some some hard choices would need to be made. Okay, whose movie is this going to be? Because it is usually one character's movie, and so I would like to be involved in those decisions. I'm actually as good as a movie that like it sounds. I'm more interested in the sequels and uh, <laughs> <laughs> novel form. So tell us a little bit well, about that. Well, here's what I'll say. I am a third of the way through another supernatural thriller set in the deep south. Uh, and that's really all I can say at this point in time uh, in regards to why I can't say if it's a sequel or not. 
Um, I will say that I am at home in this genre. And I will say that I am not done with these characters. Their, their story is not finished. But I, I will also say I've said that about all my characters. I really have. Every book I finished, I've thought, well, I could write a sequel with this. With my first book, my editor at the time said, leave those people alone. You've put them through absolute hell. <laughs> You've ravaged parts of the city. You need to, this was before Katrina. So there was that. But I always feel like um, that, that, that I could go again with every character that I write. But with these characters, I feel like their story isn't finished. It's not just a matter of liking them and wanting to come back to them. It's a matter of their story's not done. I've been speaking with Christopher Rice. His newest book is The Heavens Rise. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.